1923, the great M.R. James wrote that there is one type of ghost story in particular of which he disapproves. And that is the one which, and I quote, peters out into a natural explanation. In this episode of Gothic Banana, we're going to look at M.R. James's favourite ghost story by his favourite ghost story writer. And that is Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's classic tale, The Familiar. Captain Barton is stalked relentlessly by an unseen foe. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Gothic Banana Podcast. I'm delighted to be once more joined by Frightwick Theatre, that's Sarah Gould, Izzy Major and Craig Sinclair. You're all very welcome. And this time around, we're going to be having a look at another story by the great Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, and this one is called The Familiar. In this one, we have a central figure by the name of Captain Barton who is terrorised by a shadowy figure who we think may have something to do with a past misdemeanour. And Captain Barton is a very interesting central figure in this tale of terror. And I'm wondering what my guests made of him as a sort of main character. Sarah. I very much like Mr Barton and feel very sorry for him. I relate to Captain Barton in the way that he catastrophizes lots of things and always imagines the worst case scenario of things. I think that's a lot to do with the characters that we meet throughout the story and the character that torments him. But I especially relate to Captain Barton when he's walking down the street in the first chapter and he hears the footsteps of his tormentor behind him. And it makes me think a lot about the amount of times that I've walked down the street and catastrophized and imagined who could be following me? Who's behind me? Who who can't I see that's hiding down the alleyway? Or who's that in the bus stop? And what do they want? You know, what are they going to do to me? Yeah, I think that's bang on. And I think it's kind of interesting as well, because I suppose in, in the opening section of the story, Barton is a very much a, I suppose, an everyman figure. He's the man of action and he's a fearless man. And then suddenly he's walking home one night and it all starts to turn. And suddenly we see a lot of kind of weakness. Is he? I think he's quite a regimented man as well. I think he he wants his belief system to be neatly wrapped up in a box and to have a certain way of understanding the world and his place in it. And yeah, I really get the feeling that when he has this experience that his kind of core values, his core beliefs are kind of thrown into a state of catastrophe and in a way that's really traumatic for him. Yeah, because he's a man of the Enlightenment, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't believe in, in the afterlife and he's, he's not a religious person. And then suddenly he's being haunted. So it's a, a lovely little kind of juxtaposition there. Yeah, Sarah? Yeah, I feel like he's experiencing uncertainty for the first time in his life and probably um, had a very straightforward way of thinking and doing things. And then suddenly he's lost control. So I think it's a really interesting point in this character's life. But I think particularly for men at that time, needing to be in control of things and then suddenly having that taken away from you by going through a psychotic episode or, you know, whatever he's experiencing must be so difficult. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Beautifully set up. Craig? I just wanted to to pick up on something that was said just then and relates to the M.R. James quote. There's something that's quite unusual in this 
and in the Jamesian tradition of storytelling, where it's, it's something that doesn't happen very often in, in modern ghost stories. In modern ghost stories, someone moves into a house, discovers that it's haunted, and then goes like, oh, it's a ghost. We'll have to deal with this ghost. Whereas in this story and in M.R. James, especially in like Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, they're usually sort of enlightened, scholarly professors, and it completely shakes their foundations in a way that means they're driven mad because, you know, if, if you've had a, if you've discovered a ghost, you'd be ringing, well, I'd be ringing new scientists or something and saying, bloody hell, you know, everything I thought about life and death is completely wrong. It's quite refreshing in that sense. Because I suppose it, it sort of stages that big sort of 19th century tension between conservative religious thinking and the sort of enlightened modernist sort of view of the world as sort of rational and explicable. Of course, M.R. James's quote says that the best ghost stories are the ones that can't be explained away. And this is certainly one of those ones. So in the opening, we have Captain Barton and he's sort of all set up. He's an eligible bachelor. He's engaged to be married and he spends the evening with his bride-to-be and her guardian on the north side of Dublin. But of course, he has to walk all the way across the river to the south side. And that's where the first stage of the haunting begins to happen, which is what Sarah described as the footsteps in the background. Maybe we'll have a listen to an extract from the story which describes this stage of his terror. It was considerably past midnight when Mr Barton took his leave and set out upon his solitary walk homeward. He had now reached the lonely road with its unfinished dwarf walls tracing the foundations of the projected row of houses on either side. The moon was shining mistily and its imperfect light made the road he trod but additionally dreary. That utter silence, which has in it something indefinably exciting, reigned there and made the sound of his steps, which alone broke it, unnaturally loud and distinct. He had proceeded thus some way when he, on a sudden, heard other footfalls pattering at a measured pace, and it seemed about two score steps behind him. The suspicion of being dogged is at all times unpleasant. It is, however, especially so in a spot so lonely. And this suspicion became so strong in the mind of Captain Barton that he abruptly turned about to confront his pursuer. But, though there was quite sufficient moonlight to disclose any object upon the road he had traversed, no form of any kind was visible there. The steps he had heard could not have been the reverberation of his own, for he stamped his foot upon the ground and walked briskly up and down in the vain attempt to awake an echo. Though by no means a fanciful person, therefore, he was at last fain to charge the sounds upon his imagination and treat them as an illusion. Thus, satisfying himself, he resumed his walk and before he had proceeded a dozen paces, the mysterious footfall was again audible from behind, and this time, as if with the special design of showing that the sounds were not the responses of an echo, the steps sometimes slackened nearly to a halt, and sometimes hurried for six or eight strides to a run, and again abated to a walk. Captain Barton, as before, turned suddenly round, and with the same result, 
No object was visible above the deserted level of the road. He walked back over the same ground, determined that whatever might have been the cause of the sounds which had so disconcerted him, it should not escape his search. The endeavour, however, was unrewarded. In spite of all his scepticism, he felt something like a superstitious fear stealing fast upon him, and with these unwanted and uncomfortable sensations, he once more turned and pursued his way. There was no repetition of these haunting sounds until he had reached the point where he had last stopped to retrace his steps. Here, they were resumed, and with sudden starts of running, which threatened to bring the unseen pursuer up to the alarmed pedestrian. Captain Barton arrested his course as formerly. The unaccountable nature of the occurrence filled him with vague and disagreeable sensations, and yielding to the excitement that was gaining upon him, he shouted sternly, Who goes there? The sound of one's own voice, thus exerted in utter solitude and followed by total silence, has in it something unpleasantly dismaying, and he felt a degree of nervousness which, perhaps, from no cause had he ever known before. And that extract is from chapter one of The Familiar by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, and that was read by Izzy and Craig. Izzy, you had a thought on this particular extract. Over to you. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking this is such a, I mean, I would imagine a universal feeling of being followed. And I'm sure we all have different conjurings in our imagination of what it might be that's pursuing us. And I wondered, I mean, for me, it's usually a man, you know, that's what I'm thinking, I'm being followed home, I'm being followed by a man. And I guess I was wondering in the group if people had a different kind of conjuring. And I guess I was interested in hearing from the men really about if you have this experience of footsteps behind you, what is it that is pursuing you? Is it something very different from you? So like I'm going for the opposite sex. Yeah, I just wondered. For me, it's always a man or it's the idea of a, a gang of youths or something that are going to, um, you know, beat me up and steal my moustache. That's what frightens me. That is truly a tale of terror. Now that you've asked the question, I can't actually think exactly of any time it happened to me, even though I know it's happened to me loads. I do remember once watching one of the Halloween movies in a friend's house and then walking home on my own. And that was a bit weird because you sort of have your man Michael Myers in your head, you know, possibly following you. And, and you remember in the, in the Halloween movies, he always walks, but he seems to travel space at three times the speed of anybody else, even though he's just sort of ambling down the street. That's what I can remember. I think the sound in itself was always enough for me. I always think when I walked home and heard footsteps, I didn't really want to know what it was. I just wanted to get home as quickly as possible. So it just speeded me up, I think. Sarah? Because I'm a tall woman and in the nighttime, you might not necessarily see that I'm female. I feel that if I walk with a sort of solid stature and more of a um, purpose in my step, as I would if I were imitating very wrongly a man, you know, not all men walk like that. But if I, you know, if I'm trying to look like a big man, then that's how I would walk. And so sometimes I march past these groups of youths or whoever I'm scared. I'm scared of all the people that you're scared of. And of course, linking all of this back to the story, the familiar. And again, going back to our quote of the week from M.R. James, there is something incredibly inexplicable about the elements of this torment, because, of course, he's walking. He hears the footsteps, which are sort of two yards behind him on the footpath. He hears them running up to him. He turns around and there's nothing there. There's something quite extraordinary, I think, about that sort of dynamic in the story, especially as Izzy said earlier, because this is a rational man who doesn't believe in the supernatural. Greg. 
on that note, yeah, it's interesting because he tries to use science to kind of dispel the thought, doesn't he? He tries to, it's beautifully written, it says, he tries to an, awaken an echo. So he, he sort of tries to scientifically rationalise it with a bit of kind of audio science by trying to make the same noise himself. Oh, was it me? Was it my footsteps? But no, it's not. It's whatever else is there. Yeah, and the footsteps, of course, that are pursuing him are irregular where his own step is actually on, on the same beat all the time. So it's, um, yeah, it's great the sense that, you know, is he imagining it? Because that's sort of the only rational explanation. Or do we have an irrational explanation, which is, of course, that he's being haunted. Is he? Yeah, I was just reflecting a little bit more on the character and thinking that he, I think he's done everything he can to try not to experience fear. So I wonder if at the time, actually being a kind of rational, enlightened person, maybe made him feel a bit safer and less fearful than being someone who believes in God and the devil and heaven and hell. And of course, then, you know, there's the possibility that you can be later punished for things you commit in the past and have to meet your sins at your journey's end. And I think the line that made me think that, sorry, I can't remember the exact line, but it says about I experienced something like fear or something there's something about that there's a little bit of distance between him and the experience of fear yeah because at this stage of the story he's not actually terrorized this is sort of the beginning of it and it's only when it goes to the next stage of terror which we'll do in the next extract that he starts to crumble a little bit because as you said he's he's a navy man so he's not afraid he's not afraid of confronting whoever's following him but slowly this unpicks at him as the story progresses and we see him sort of crumble. Yeah, just that it's quite a scientific summary at this point, isn't it? As Craig said about trying to conjure the echo and then I'm experiencing something a bit like fear. Oh, I think it's fear. You know, it's almost like he's analysing the situation rather than living in, in true fear or terror as we, we see him experience later. Yeah, surprised at his own vulnerability almost, wasn't it? Yeah. And we don't really fear for him at this stage of the story, I don't think. I think it's when we move on to the next stage of terror. Um, so it, it goes from the, the sounds of footsteps following him, and then it progresses to the appearance of a figure who he seems to recognize. And let's have a listen to that extract now. And that comes from chapter three, and it's the scene which is set in College Green in Dublin, right in the center of Dublin City. And this one is read by Sarah Gould. As we were walking in at the passage from College Green, a man, of whom I remember only that he was short in stature, looked like a foreigner, and wore a kind of fur travelling cap, walked very rapidly, and as if under fierce excitement, directly towards us, muttering to himself fast and vehemently the while. This odd looking person walked straight toward Barton, who was foremost of the three, and halted, regarding him for a moment or two with a look of maniacal menace and fury, and then, turning about as abruptly, he walked before us at the same agitated pace and disappeared at a side passage. I do distinctly remember being a good deal shocked at the countenance and bearing of this man, which indeed irresistibly impressed me with an undefined sense of danger, such as I had never felt before or since from the presence of anything human. But these sensations were on my part far from amounting to anything so disconcerting as to flurry or excite me. 
I had seen only a singularly evil countenance, agitated as it seemed, with the excitement of madness. I was absolutely astonished, however, at the effect of this apparition upon Captain Barton. I knew him to be a man of proud courage and coolness in real danger, a circumstance which made his conduct upon this occasion the more conspicuously odd. He recoiled a step or two as the stranger advanced and clutched my arm in silence with what seemed to be a spasm of agony or terror. And then, as the figure disappeared, shoving me roughly back, he followed it for a few paces, stopped in great disorder and sat down upon a form. I never beheld a countenance more ghastly and haggard. Okay, so that's an extract from stage two of The Torment of Captain Barton, where he sees a figure whom he seems to recognize. And I think it's probably worth making some comment on the fact that what's terrifying about this figure is partly the reference to the fact that he looks like a foreigner. Very 19th century and very gothic. Sarah? Yeah, so I looked into the original meaning of xenophobia, which is a a fear of the unknown. So the, the description we're using the word foreigner anyway is xenophobic and now, you know, would be described as enormously racist. I think when it comes to Captain Barton, he experiences xenophobia in all forms, in its original form, which is to fear anything that he doesn't know about for certain or anything that's unfamiliar or anything that's other to him. So, for example, he's terrified of the supernatural because he doesn't understand it. He can't take control of that. He's fearful of Miss Montague's owl. He's fearful of this person who he describes as a foreigner. So Mm. I think it's a sense of otherness which comes from the time, or is a reflection of the time that this was written. I think even though the fact that this guy is sort of a non-believer and an enlightened figure, his values are very, very conservative in many respects. And of course, it's a big feature of the Gothic, isn't it? The idea that the foreigner is the bad guy. Yeah, on that note, the foreigner as a bad guy is is a massive, almost like a trope in Gothic literature, isn't it? You know, there's Fu Manchu, who's a terribly racist sort of stereotype (laughs) of a Chinese sort of magician, gangster, just mastermind criminal Draculia Draculia you know Bram Stoker's classic character Draculia was um <laughs> terribly uh, well I wouldn't say he's terribly racist but he's the other isn't he? he's from foreign lands and he brings you know mm. evil foreboding wherever he goes there's loads of examples of this throughout that genre it just struck me as you were saying that as well about Fu Manchu of course some of the big actors in early cinema were imported, of course, from parts of Europe, like Bela Lugosi, who I think was Hungarian, Boris Karloff, uh, Peter Lorre, the German actor, because, of course, the German accent was great for a bad guy in the middle part of the 20th century in Hollywood. And, of course, in recent years, it's been very popular to have that posh English accent as your bad guy, not just in Gothic, but, you know, Die Hard movies, Robin Hood movies. It's not just a 19th century thing. It's, it's very much something that's still happening now, I think, in stories. Yeah, just think it'd be worth mentioning. I don't think it's only in stories that that which is foreign or unknown to people is that which directly they see as a threat or as a kind of tormentor. 
I mean, this is something we hear a lot in everyday lives. I mean, I'm trying to think about situations where I've heard rant of this kind, where I suppose the phrase foreigner is bandied about. Well, of course, a lot of this discourse has been very popular in recent years. There's an American president, I can't remember his name, who was very fond of this sort of thing. And there was a bunch of guys who started out a referendum in the UK who used a lot of this kind of talk as well. So, yeah, it's um, very present in contemporary society. Just a small point following on from that. I think that the word that you would use to describe Barton's behaviour and then, you know, how it's very much in modern culture today is microaggressions and this idea of you know we're talking about walking down the street and feeling threatened you know and a lot of people might cross over the road if they see somebody who they feel is other to them or unfamiliar to them. Izzy you wanted to jump in there. Yeah but it was just directly relating to what Sarah said about crossing the street if you feel that you see someone that I guess is other to you or unfamiliar and I just thought I wonder if that's kind of neutralized in this time of Covid when we're literally crossing the street to get away from anyone outside of our household. I wonder if some of the kind of microaggressions have just turned into just pure aggression on the street always. And the the beautiful poetic inclusivity of that. I just hope that the irony is not lost on everyone of the Prime Minister who called people wearing traditional Muslim garbs, you know, letterboxes, is now urging everyone to wear face coverings. And, you know, who was was banding about the idea of banning face coverings now has told the entire nation to wear face coverings. I just think that's brilliant. That's right. And making a point of shaking hands with everybody he met in the early part of the pandemic, thinking he looked really, really clever. Anyway, one thing that we sort of alluded to earlier, of course, was the fact that Barton is the, the naval officer and we sort of see a chink in the armour. The first extract that we listened to, I know we see a major chink in the armour that maybe he's not as robust and as tough as we thought he was. The disintegration is quite rapid. Of course, he, he becomes incredibly fragile and feeble and terrified as the story progresses. And I think we'll listen to another extract now. And this one's read by Izzy. And this is from chapter six. And this is where Barton is being reassured by his future father-in-law, who, of course, wants his daughter to get a good match as well. A man called Montague. I assume all his friends in, in, in the army call him Monty. And Monty has come back from India and is going to sort everything out and deal with this problem which of course is only a triviality and as i said this is read by izzy and this is from chapter six general you do not know he began yes but i do know quite enough to warrant my confidence interrupted the soldier don't i know that All your annoyance proceeds from the occasional appearance of a certain little man in a cap and greatcoat, with a red vest and a bad face, who follows you about and pops upon you at corners of lanes and throws you into argue fits. Now, my dear fellow, I'll make it my business to catch this mischievous little mountebank and either beat him to a jelly with my own hands or have him whipped through the town at the cart's tail before a month passes. If you knew what I knew, said Barton, with gloomy agitation, you would speak very differently. Don't imagine that I am so weak as as to assume without proof the most overwhelming, the the conclusion to which I have been forced. The proofs are here. 
locked up here. As he spoke, he tapped upon his breast and with an anxious sigh continued to walk up and down the room. Well, well, Barton, said his visitor. I'll wager a rump and a dozen I collar the ghost and convince even you before many days are over. He was running on in the same strain when he was suddenly arrested and not a little shocked by observing Barton, who had approached the window, stagger slowly back like one who had received a stunning blow, his arm extended towards the street, his face and his very lips white as ashes while he muttered, There, there, by heaven, no, there, there. There. Thank you, Izzy. What a fantastic extract. And two very interesting male characters at work in this scene are representations of maleness and masculinity. Sarah, would you like to make a comment on the subject? I would. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very interested in Victorian masculinity as a subject and the transformation that it took from being masculinity sort of being described as something spiritual and, you know, very earnest people are masculine. That was a sort of sign of masculinity. And then from the sort of um, 1870s, it became about being very strong. And by being strong, science says you'll have a good mind too. And I got this wonderful quote from E.M. Forster, which is describing men of the time. Well-developed bodies, fairly developed minds, and undeveloped hearts. And I think that's very much reflected in the behaviour of Mr. Montague, who sort of fulfills that stereotype of being the, you know, daddy's here to protect everyone and sort it out, and I'll ruffle him up. I guess it reminded me as well of this kind of masculine approach to things that are bothering uh, the mind. So people's mental health being dealt with, with kind of aggression and kind of claims of manning up, you know, man up is something I know boys and men hear a lot when they're sensitive or perhaps when they're experiencing difficulty in their lives or any kind of mental deterioration that might be going on for them. Yeah, this idea of manning up and this idea that violence really um, is the best way to sort out something that's going on inside either the heart or head just to borrow from the the kind of the idea of the body the heart and the head that uh, Sarah was talking about I just think that's just not the right approach at all I just can't believe that his immediate reaction is you know if it's a psychological issue or something supernatural we'll beat it up Following from what you said, I mean, Lefanu's story very clearly points out that Barton does himself no favours by not talking about it and not sharing his problem and not, you know, and not admitting even a 1% vulnerability in his male self. And only eventually when he's sort of in dire straits and in, in very poor physical condition, does he sort of confide in people, including the priest, which is mad stuff. Craig? It also uh, speaks to the, the issue of male mental health just not being addressed as a serious concern up until maybe that it's only really a recent development I mean talking in the last 15 years something like that and even even then only in the past couple of years that it's been a thing that's you know some awareness has been raised but it also reminds me of in green tea the last story we looked at where no one really takes the poor Reverend Jennings very seriously and he ends up killing himself whether it's an apparition or mental health no one's taking his inner life seriously and you know people didn't take their inner life seriously 
until the the sort of birth of psychotherapy with yeah. Freud. Yeah, and he he messed things up for a lot of people, I'd argue. Yeah, there's a mixed bag of results there for sure. The original version of this story that Lefferdo wrote was in 1851, which is 170 years ago. It's quite incredible. And I think we're going to discover as we go through various stories as part of the podcast series that there are things that will be raised in the 1800s by Lefferdo that are still... Um, Still a lot of unfinished business and still a lot of work to do, I would say. Also, in terms of the depictions of masculinity in the story, it's probably worth mentioning that as genres, gothic and melodrama are very interlinked. I suppose in melodrama, what often happens is the male hero gets up to his daring do and and rescues the female from the tower at the end of the story. One thing I think that's really interesting about this story and a lot of Lefanu's work is that the male man of action is actually quite redundant and ineffectual. The extract that we just heard from Izzy, uh, what happens immediately after that is General Montague runs out into the street to beat this guy to a pulp with his walking stick. And of course, your man has disappeared. And everybody in the street starts laughing at Montague for making an idiot of himself. So that sort of melodramatic, virile male hero is kind of useless in this story. And I think that's a really interesting take on it. Greg? There's also something that's quite particular to the Gothic and is kind of outdated now in that male heroes or even male victims are kind of not so much of a thing in contemporary horror. If you think about from the sort of 70s really onward in horror literature and in in horror cinema, it's always females falling foul of of things and it's given us all these different tropes like the the final girl thing, which is, you know, the last surviving uh, heroine. But there's a thing in James and in the Lefanu stories we've looked at where it's sort of a, a male, quite often a middle-aged academic, generally speaking, which is a real lost thing. You know, you don't see many horror films these days about sort of a, you know, a middle-aged guy in a sort of non, non-heroic occupation as the main character. And it's mm. quite a lost trope, I suppose. We're going to do one final extract from the story. And as you may have guessed, of course, spoiler time, things don't really get much better for Captain Barton. And eventually he's sort of housed up and he once again encounters this figure of torment. And this this encounter, which is sort of the last straw, he ends up in a swoon and faints and is sort of unconscious and he has a dream. And when he wakes up from the dream, he then reports that. So this is an extract from chapter eight. And this is the dream that Captain Barton has shortly before his final demise. I was lying by the margin of a broad lake, with misty hills all round, and a soft, melancholy, rose-coloured light illuminated it all. It was unusually sad and lonely, and yet more beautiful than any earthly scene. My head was leaning on the lap of a girl, and she was singing, a song that told I know not how whether by words or harmonies of all my life, all that is past and all that is still to come. And with the song, the old feelings that I thought had perished within me came back and tears flowed from my eyes, partly for the song and its mysterious beauty and partly for the unearthly sweetness of her voice. And yet I knew the voice, oh how well, and I was spellbound as I listened and looked at the solitary scene without stirring, almost without breathing. 
and alas, alas, without turning my eyes towards the face that I knew was near me, so sweetly powerful was the enchantment that held me. And so, slowly, the song and scene grew fainter and fainter to my senses, till all was dark and still again. And then I awoke to this world, as you saw, comforted, for I knew that I was forgiven much. Very interesting thing about that extract, I feel, is that throughout the story, of course, Captain Barton is this terrible victim of this figure that is haunting him. And at the end of that extract, he states, I was forgiven much. And suddenly we realize he may be a victim, but he's not an innocent victim. There's something in this guy's past that he wants forgiveness for. Is he? I think this is about him relinquishing control. So throughout, we've seen this very controlled, regimented version of him. And perhaps it's because he behaved in a way that he regrets. He has some kind of guilt lingering behind him. So maybe from that point forward, he decided to live life in a very measured and controlled way. And here we have this kind of picture of heaven. I think it feels a very heavenly picture. And I think maybe he's realising that as he has relinquished control and encountered these unfamiliar things that haunt him, that are completely terrorizing, he also then gets to enjoy the opposite of that, which is the things you can't control that are very beautiful, that the beautifully uncontrollable, the aspects of life that are simply not known, but where real beauty dwells. Sarah? Well, I think another way of looking at it is with the way that he's lying on this woman's lap and she's singing to him and telling him the story of his past and his present and future. So it could be instead that he is comforted in this, as Izzy describes, a heaven by knowing all the facts of what has been and what will be. So in fact, sort of secures the idea that he is a bit of a control freak and is only settled when he knows exactly what's about to happen in the future. Almost as if he's accepting death. Absolutely. This story has, you know, that there's many ways of interpreting the vagueness of the things that happen within it. Gothic also, I think it's one of those genres where there's a lot of death and there's a lot of meditation on death and what that means and sort of ways of processing that. My reading of it was more that there was, like you say, a lot of symbolism going on there and that it was this kind of accepting of the inevitable and letting go maybe of this guilt from his past transgressions. I think it's quite nice to finish on that extract because it's a good example of where the Gothic isn't just about, you know, things that go bump in the night. That There's a lot of tenderness and a gentle quality, shall we say, and some really, really beautiful description and writing. Uh, what we might do now is end part one and begin part two, where we listen to our own creative adaptations of Lefanu's original. <laughs> This time around, what we did was we set ourselves a bit of a task. What we said we would do was we would all write an adaptation, but instead of writing a full story, we would just write the ending. So sort of a double mystery at work in this episode where even the author doesn't know the first half or the first three quarters of the story. We've just sort of written an ending just to see what others make of it. I think we might begin with the call of the car park king. 
and this is by Craig Sinclair, and this is read by my good self, Brian Desmond. With the engine screaming before them, and three empty seats behind, they watched as the fur-faced scotch-egged men at the roadside fell away in the rearview mirror, another lumpen nightmare dying before the dawn. They drove in silence, for some time with the salty sting of burning flesh lingering in their nostrils, eyes fixed to the road which kept on unfolding, leaving plenty of time to sit in the grey observance of all they'd lost. It was Rex who finally spoke. Just a few more lay lines to cross, then we can stop for a piss and a butty. Fiona heard, and she was starving, but there was too much on her mind to reply. He went on. Managed to grab a couple of egg mayos and a bag of frazzles before things kicked off in the services there. Think there's still some pop left in me bag, if you're thirsty? She couldn't tell if he was joking. She'd no time for fizz with what lay ahead. Stop the car here, she said. Without hesitation, he floored the brakes, and they screeched to an ugly halt in the middle of the broken motorway. She kicked open the door and stepped out to greet the end. It was quiet at first, only the nervous cackling of crows to peel open the pink new day. But then a slow juggernaut rubble began to quake from below. This must be the place. She heard it, felt it, as obvious as rain, as the misty sight of her breath or the hammering of her heart. She heard it, and her purpose was clear. It was the clarion call of all the dreaded eldritch things, of skeleton lime-pit warriors clawing to the surface with bleach-white bones, of giggling porn goblins rustling from their hard drive lay-by lairs, of chattering fenland wraiths in search of tender prey, of cannibal witches buried beneath beer gardens and arrow-headed Saxon assassins wandering empty shopping centres pancaked-faced gulls and winged harpies of all the dead and terrible things that stalk the globe in water and earth ashes on the breeze in the minds of frightened children all terrors real and imagined were swelling and surrounding enveloping seeking and finding her here in this moment of grave punctuation but she was unerring in her stance Deep down, she had always known, as familiar as her own shining reflection, that her purpose was not to fight it, but to embrace it. She watched as the first wave rushed the car, tentacles and hooves and gnashing fangs feasting on her beloved Rex, though his pleading bloodshot eyes meant nothing to her as they were plucked from their sockets and slurped like some abhorrent Sadian delicacy. They unstitched his flesh suit with their busy, frantic fingers, delighting in the spray of his blood that burst from the torn seams, devouring him screaming, leaving no bone unsucked. 
the conclusion of this terrible journey rushed to greet her with furious colour and frenzied gyrations. A sputtering, hideous scene of unparalleled catastrophe swirling all around, and she burrowed into it quite comfortably, making a friend of it, ruling it. And she was happy. And that was The Call of the Car Park King by Craig St. Clair. What did we make of that? Sarah? Loved it. Beautifully read. And the story was wonderful. The last scene reminded me of that film Alien when she's wrapped in... Doesn't doesn't she sort of make love to the beast or something? I don't know. It reminded me of that anyway. A sort of um, tentacled orgy at the end of your story. Is that what you were going for, Craig? Um, not so much an orgy. Like a sort of orgy of violence, maybe. I was going for kind of a bit like a, a Stephen King kind of 80s pulpy thing where they throw it at the kitchen sink at it and it's really purple prose with the one description isn't ever enough in those kind of things and a a little bit of sort of Lovecraftian writing is a bit like that I think but the thing that inspired me to write it sort of responding to um, the familiar was the the pacing just the fact that it's pretty breakneck pacing for a gothic story and so I wanted to write something that clipped along you know and something that commented on the fact that it was the end in the writing there's a few little kind of meta textual references to the fact that we're acknowledging that this is the end of a story. There's an apocalyptic element to this as well, which I think most of us have felt it during the various lockdowns during our COVID experience. The sort of end of the world sort of element with all these beasts coming to devour humans. Izzy, what did you make of it? Yeah, very much like you just said, Brian, about the apocalyptic nature of it. And it made me think how close the apocalypse is to us now, not only with what's going on with COVID, but what's going on with climate change, that it's almost just become second nature to have conversations about the impending apocalypse. And I just wondered whether we're just accepting that, like this female character in Craig's story does, almost in the same way that Barton is accepting his fate at the end of The Familiar. Is she embracing the fact that the apocalypse is happening? And I I guess I was thinking, is that something that's happening in our everyday now? And does that mean that we don't try anymore to kind of steer the world in a slightly different direction? Are we just always just thinking, yeah, it's gonna end and let's just embrace the chaos. And does that invite kind of more violence as it does in this story? Yeah, it makes it sort of quite nihilistic, doesn't it? And I think it's a great connection to the original, the sense that, you know, something starts happening and you've no real control over it and it, it accelerates and you reach the point where you just sort of don't care anymore and you just accept it. Yeah, I'm just wondering, though, does that acceptance mean that we allow loads of very unacceptable things to kind of happen in the midst of this we're in the apocalypse, so all these things are just happening. Kind of thinking about the way that Brexit has just kind of slipped through during all of these very apocalyptic times and how whether our attention then isn't really on the specific things and the specific violences and injustices, if violences is a word, uh, Mm. aggressions and injustices that are happening in our world. If we embrace pure chaos, do we allow a menagerie of kind of evil to filter through 
in that sense, I suppose, where, where Craig's reference to the 1980s and, you know, Mad Max movies and stuff like this, where there's no law and order anymore and you don't have any choice but to accept it. You sort of have to roll with it and survive. Sarah? Yes, horrendous things like the um, free school meals getting cancelled, things like that. It just happened. Then it was a conversation for a while and everyone was really cross. And then Christmas happened, then we're in another lockdown and it, that, that's also sort of disappeared. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, COVID's a great distraction. Craig? I was thinking of a kind of English apocalypse because the idea of that king, it was Richard, one of the Richards was buried and then they built a car park over the top of him and he was his body was discovered a couple of years ago. And I love this idea of, you know, that history is just buried underneath us. I've always loved the idea of like uh, a witch being buried underneath a beer garden or something like that, you know, that it's this really banal, mundane, contemporary mixed with this, you know, historic, rich kind of ghostly thing and i was trying to do like a really english apocalypse like what english monsters are they? you know goblins and witches and stuff like that the other thing it reminded me of which is the movie which i, th- I think is 1980 with the warriors which is the street gangs in new york and these boys have to get from manhattan island all the way to coney island while every other gang in new york is chasing after them um, so just before i did that recording i listened four times over to the theme music to the warriors to kind of get myself into the you know the breathless sort of madness of the end uh yeah it's an absolute classic isn't it with the ending where he's chanting warriors come out to play it's wonderful i just wanted to say that you you read it really brilliantly and i think your scouse accent has actually joined the pantheon of great accents that my Irish accent joined last time, which also you're in the company now of Leonardo DiCaprio in The Blood Diamond doing his uh, South African accent. <laughs> so well done there. Well, thanks very much. I, I did live in Liverpool for seven years, so I had an outside chance with that one. The, uh... <laughs> I think we should move on to the next story. And where better to go next than to a piece of writing by Sarah Gould. This is called When the Bubble pops and this one is read by craig the convulsions have started a creamy white foam is peeking out the corners of his chat lips makes me think of him on christmas day pissed as a fart and covered in eggnog the next day i found dried up milky drops of it all over my deceased mother's armchair Ugh, that stinks Ugh. losing control of the bowels is part of it but that stench. Yeah, that's something else I won't miss. Streams of bubble wrap farts would just jump out of him day and night like microwave popcorn. He'd try and cover it up. Oh, this chair's a bit creaky. I open a window and light a vanilla soy candle, but uh, it just sweetens the scent. Like whipped cream on a used tampon. I need fresh air. So I stand in the garden for a few minutes, get me bearings. I practice Tadasana, the mountain pose, which helps. I'd started to get a hang of beginner's yoga over the first lockdown before he insisted on using my laptop 24 hours a day to play Foxy Bingo. I suck hard on me inhaler. It's February and crisp. I see my breath leave me in the moon's light. A moment's calm waves itself across my tormented thoughts before I'm interrupted by his groans and whines. 
they turned me stomach. It's worse than hearing his tipsy, nasal renditions of 90s pop songs. Do you know what? I'm Team Atomic Kittens all the way. I'd love to be mates with Kerry Corona. Which one's your favourite? I bet you prefer the boy bands, don't you? What is it? Blue? Boy Zone? <laughs> That's what we should start calling this place, the Boy Zone. <laughs> oh, what will they think of us for? Is this burning an eternal flame? <laughs> I go back into the living room and he's rolling around on the floor. To see him here like this, it's, well, exhilarating. All those weeks of biting me tongue. His millions of meltdowns about the guilt that's eating him up because he can't visit his 92-year-old gran. The hours of listening to him drag on about vaccine conspiracy theories. The hundreds of times I've caught him hunched over his phone, stirring at the Deliveroo app, licking his lips every time the little motorbike moved a centimetre across the screen, the dirty mugs in the sink, the shit trails in the loo, helping himself to my muller corners out of my fridge. <sighs> he's crawling across the carpet now, his right arm outstretched, like he's reaching, he's reaching. Oh shit, he's reaching for his phone. <laughs> I don't think so. I run past him and grab it before he's even close. I let him watch me as I stamp on it. The glass breaks under my boot and he collapses in a heap on the floor. His blue lips are mouthing something that I just make out. But we're in a support bubble. Well, that's pretty rough stuff, is he? So I'm imagining this is a COVID situation and these people are locked in together. So I was kind of imagining a couple, but then I don't know with the support bubble, if it's like a house share, but just when our worlds are so small and we're locked in together, that every kind of manifestation of evil is actually symbolized in that person who is taking our Muller yogurt out the fridge or their irritating habits, these kind of purgings that would normally happen, hopefully outside of the house, you would see things you disagreed with. But I really think that the person you live with during this time takes up a lot of slack. And perhaps we do imagine ways that we can slowly and violently kill each other in this time. Yeah. And, you know, how close we probably have all felt at some point to being unhinged by this whole process of closeness to a very restricted number of people. And linking it back to the original story, of course, the fact that there's two people. One of them is in a slow demise and the other person is driving this. You know, that there's a very clear relationship of cruelty and terrorizing at work. Except in this case, it's very much a domestic situation. Sarah, do you want to reveal some to us of, of what you were up to there? Are we anywhere near the mark? It's spot on, Brian. It was a reflection on the challenges of lockdown and being with the same person 24-7. Also, the pressure one might experience if they're in a support bubble. I'm very pro support bubbles, by the way. But linking it to the unfamiliar, that idea of not being able to be rid of something that you find tormenting and the social pressures of keeping that person around. <laughs> and uh, when I was relating it to COVID, 
I thought, why not a support bubble where you're forced to take care of each other and have each other around on Christmas Day, even though it's company. But but is it really company if it's that tedious? Yeah, well, your character deals with the torment by just tormenting back, which um, seems to be quite effective in this case. Craig? It actually reminded me a little bit of The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, where the guy's employer, because he's kind of like a butler or a servant to this, this older guy with a strange, bulbous eye, and the eye drives him mad. But the guy's not trying to have a bulbous eye. It's just that it's there and he can't stand it and he gets more and more grossed out the more time he has to spend with it. And these things that, you know, your beloved partner or, you know, support bubble person might be doing, they might not be trying to drive you mad uh, necessarily, but everything is heightened under the microscope of, you know, being stuck in the same four walls. Time for another extract. Okay, this is my humble effort. This one is called Oddly Familiar. It's by my good self, Brian Desmond. And this is read by Izzy Major. They go to hers. No need for a detour. She always packs with eventualities in mind. Back in the room, she places her glass on the table and waits, facing the wall, somehow knowing that he'll be in like Flynn and also where his hands will go when he first cradles her from behind. And from there, each moment of initiative he shows is for her expected and known before. So weirdly and wonderfully predictable. No, not predictable, more that as soon as it happens, she has a sense that deep down, puns aside, she always knew he was going to do that. As if every single nucleus in the body system is being thrilled in perfect replay of some forgotten past glory with millimolecular precision. Like that pulsating shift in pitch during a perfect aria, the one that makes your hair stand on end like a cartoon electrocution when the soprano's voice paradoxically roots itself in the mire of human suffering and simultaneously soars like that animated snowman over the rooftops to infinity and beyond. You've heard it before. You know exactly what's coming and it hits the money spot each and every time without fail. But this was no aria. And everything he does seems, without exception, oddly familiar. After 12 years of business trips and hotel flips, she was well aware that every deal clinched has its own flavour, its own atmosphere of transaction and closure. No two dealers negotiate the same, even if schooled by the same Mr Miyagi of commerce. Just as no two risk-free disposables, no matter their similarity, go uniformly about their amorous business, each has a distinct regularity of breath, especially the Guinness drinkers, and variations therein, a rhythm of movement, a sense of coordination, a tactile sensibility, or lack of, an animal quality, be it runt, sheep, dog, goat, or a mixture of two, maybe three, a cat and alpaca merger, a hybrid of lemur and goat, a donkey or whatever, but everything this guy does is so 
oddly familiar. And the way that he suddenly and bizarrely sucks on that earlobe without any sense of humour is so precisely familiar to her that the temptation to flick on the light and demand explanation of who he really is is only narrowly avoided by the distraction and titillation of a spontaneous yet utterly familiar tingle just beneath her expensively stud-pierced belly button. If she had a recording device, she could dictate the following exactly three seconds before each syllable of action comes to pass. That, following the shuddering completion of multiple acts of consent, he would lie suddenly still, as if exhausted of all agency. Then, appearing to be entering the land of nod and wink, he would suddenly leap up and, as if to avoid detection, tiptoe in silhouette toward the bathroom light, which, for some reason, has stayed on throughout their sweaty encounter. A minor burst of flatulence escapes him, and she knows that he will try to cover this with an extra heavy step on the carpet, which, of course, he does. But it is when he stops, in perfect chiaroscuro, in the frame of the bathroom door to stretch his exerted body, that she notices and recognises in detail the subtle differences that distinguish his naked left buttock from the right. In horror, she turns her face to the wall. The detail is both unmistakable and familiar. She knows that she has seen these buttocks before. Fantastic. Thank you, Izzy. Sarah, would you like to respond to that? Brian, you have to tell us, who is he? Who is he? Uh, well, the exercise was to write the ending of a story. I actually genuinely managed to follow that part of the exercise. I have no idea what the first half of the story is. So if anybody could supply one to me, that would be much appreciated. I think perhaps it's a love story and maybe she got amnesia and then suddenly she's with the man who she was with, but she doesn't realise it, but he knows. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's wonderful. It, it leaves a lot of questions that I think could have been answered definitely before this. Izzy? I was imagining a tattoo or some kind of inscription on that left buttock, maybe something that meant that he used to belong to a cult and maybe that she didn't get amnesia but that she was hypnotised to forget this chequered past where she lived in captivation as part of this cult and regularly had a sexual encounter with this guy with a tattoo on his left buttock. Wow, this is great. Greg? Uh, I don't have a theory per se, but I just wanted to commend you on the wonderful sort of eroticism present in the writing there was the line about he nibbled on an earlobe without any sense of humor was that was you know that, that sealed the deal for me sarah it reminded me of that feeling when you're lost in a dream with possibly there's a horrible ex-partner or maybe a, a historical dictator um or something like that with you and you don't know in the dream who they are, but you know that you don't want to be with them. You know they're not right. 
to be, you know, it's not good that they're there. It felt like that, it felt a bit nightmarish, like she was trapped and she wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, Izzy? Yeah, just thinking about doppelgangers and also, as Sarah says, in dreams, we, we experience these doppelgangers where we, it's like someone familiar, but somehow there's something strange and not quite right about them. And in your story, this kind of changes from being something very gothic and steps into the absurd uh, when the doppelganger mm. is no longer a stranger from the past. It is, in fact, a left bum cheek. There's also this thing in, in dreams, isn't there, of with familiarity? Because I, I recall having a dream when I was a child and it, my cousin was there, but he was a cyclops. Like he just had one big eye in the middle of his forehead. And I just immediately accepted that that was him. I was like, oh, that's Robert. And th it's, a, it's a similar kind of feeling to the feeling of not being able to place someone that I get all the time through watching a lot of telly and films. And it drives me insane when I can't place an actor where I've seen them before. And I have to stop and Google who they are, which is really silly, but it's a compulsion. And then you get a strange thing in life, or I do anyway, where I'll see someone who I recognise in the street and... I'll know them very vaguely from a, they've served me in a shop or something like that. But it will start to drive me mad trying to place where it is. I yeah. have seen them thinking and I, I really want to go up and say, what, where do you work? Where do I know you from? But obviously I can't do that because that would be insane. But it is a strange thing, the compulsion of the familiar, but it's just out of reach, kind of eating away at you. Right. We've one more to go. And our final piece of original creative writing is a piece called Doing What She Loved by Izzy Major. And this one is read by Sarah Gould. She could see from the doctor's face that he didn't believe her. He scrolled through her notes, his glasses illuminated in the light of the computer screen, giving them a malignant shine. She was sobbing now, big snotty snorts that made the thin medical curtains shudder in discomfort. Well, I can see from your notes that you tried eating less and doing more. Is that right? She nodded her head, which she was now holding in her wet hands. Have you ever heard of something called the what paleo does it diet? High protein. Ever guess how many calories are in your favourite breakfast cereal? It isn't me, she squeaked. It isn't me. Now, now, I'm afraid we can only blame so much on genetics and thyroid glands at this stage, Carol. A pound here or there, perhaps. <laughs> I often joke that there's a skinny man trapped inside of me, dying to get out. Of course, I'm only half a stone over my BMI, nothing like you. We will do a mental health assessment while we're at it, eh? Given what you've told me, uh, there are some forms in here somewhere. We really must try to get you out and about a little bit more. How do we feel about Zumba? Now, now, Have you ever heard of I'm afraid we can only blame the so paleo much What does it turn of a glass? How many calories are in your favourite cereal? Back at her flat that evening, the doctor's formidable questions ringing in her ears. A hand that was not her own, gently forced the foot-long mixed Italian meat sandwich that would end her life directly down her neck. 
therein she died mid-flight, the family would remark, doing what she loved. Considering the absurdity of not just Lefanu's original, but all the pieces we've heard tonight, I think that's a very fitting final piece for us to talk about. Who'd like to start us off? Craig? Uh, I thought it was wonderfully prescient with everything that's going on and people being stuck in and the desire to just stuff your face or to just get pissed, you know. It's all compounded by being trapped. You, you kind of want to hibernate and stock up every day. And I think also the idea of the unsympathetic nature that people have towards obesity or towards weight sort of issues is still really prevalent like there's a bit of a movement isn't there of trying to reclaim it uh, and with plus size and things like that but it's still really we are still a really body conscious society and the horror of the idea of some unseen almost poltergeist hand force feeding you against your will is really brilliant. Izzy can you ground us please with a sense of where the idea for this story ending came from in your imagination? I was thinking about these main things that would control people in the story, the familiar. So we have people who are, you know, men or women of God and people who are men or women of science and these kind of very controlling, dominating forces. And I was trying to think, what is that now in contemporary society like what is the main dominant kind of force that we all prescribe to and so I was thinking about mass media really um, and the kind of general control and manipulation of, of us and I particularly think that it has affected our relationship with food and completely taken over our relationship with food by separating everything into food which is healthy and food which is a treat. And if you're somebody who prescribes to food, which is a treat too frequently, too often and stuff your face, then you are not someone who's going to be taken seriously and believed much like the plight of Captain Barton, who isn't taken seriously or believed in in his mental health struggles. Um, And I also thought that actually it isn't really in our control, this addiction to fat and sugar, because the food industry knows that as hunter-gatherers, we are hardwired to binge fat and sugar because we would come into it in very short supply. And they have completely latched on this and created this kind of binging in society, which I think is inescapable. To add to that, there was a a really great documentary a few years ago by, I think, Jacques Peretti called The Menu Made Us Fat. And it was about, in part, how, you know, uh, in wartime, people didn't really snack and people didn't have the luxury of, you know, chocolate just freely, a bar of chocolate, you know, it was something that you'd ration out. And even post-war, there were rations, obviously. But then a huge shift happened, partly through the media's manipulation and, and the fact that people had a bit more money. And, you know, there were things like a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. And the idea of a chocolate bar is a legitimate snack. And they were on the counter, you know, whereas there are different rules about that now. But then also in America, I think it was Nixon allowed the FDA to use corn syrup in pretty much everything going, uh, which is a hugely fattening thing. And it stops your brain from feeling full, a bit like MSG or whatever. And so the mass rollout of this as an ingredient in loads of products, coupled with this media kind of manipulation of people's food intake, had a huge negative effect. But also in 
today's society where everyone is kind of trapped inside everyone's living kind of vicariously through social media so there's this torment this kind of weird dichotomy going on where it's about people just wanting to nest and stuff your face and so what but then also have you not done joe wicks's video oh oh you know and and people saying oh well i've got to take a a sexy looking picture of myself and put that on instagram because that's the way that i'm living out in the world at the moment is through this goddamn phone so this yeah that's hugely negative isn't it you know the media's influence and social media's influence on people's own body image going back to izzy's comment as well i think alongside what craig said the idea that god and science are systems of thinking and systems of, of understanding the world the idea that you know when we replace those maybe we found new gods that um are equally problematic sarah so i just have a question for izzy in your story, where the hand is, I suppose, the secret hidden tormentor of this woman, in a sort of real life, non-supernatural version of the situation, what would you describe as the, or who would you describe as the tormentor in this world? The media is the tormentor, I think, but the kind of ghostly doppelganger hand that's shoving the the sandwich down the throat is a symbolizer of that yeah like the doppelganger that we experience in the familiar is is a metaphor for guilt or shame from some past act that was committed I was thinking more that this kind of alien hand is a metaphor yeah for the media constructing how we behave around food We've had some really lovely analysis of the original story, Sheridan Lefanu's The Familiar, and four very, very different adaptations, which respond, I suppose, to the original, but also respond very much to our own Gothic lockdown number three of COVID. What date is it? It's the 23rd of January, 2021. We are still in lockdown. Maybe in six months' time, you'll be listening to this podcast and going, oh, I remember that. I remember what that was like. I sincerely hope you do and that we're not in the fourth or fifth bloody lockdown. Okay, a big thank you once again to Frightwick Theatre, Sarah Gould, Izzy Major, and Craig Sinclair. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Uh, Next up, we're going to be looking at another story by Sheridan Lefanu, and this is actually one of his earlier works. And this one is called, it's got a wonderful title. It's called The Murdered Cousin, and that'll be episode three couple of quick thank yous. Thank you so much to the Irish Arts Council for supporting the first two episodes of this podcast series. Thank you also for all the wonderful sound design and sound effects to Craig Sinclair. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.